Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. Join our mission and help change the conversation because we are all stronger together. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them through education and advocacy. The Good Dog Pod provides dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and today we have part two of our episode talking with three fabulous Labrador Retriever breeders. We have about 120 years worth of Labrador Retriever knowledge here. Sue Willemson, Barbara Gilchrist, and Susan Patterson are joining us, and I'm thrilled to have you ladies, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. All right, Sue Willemson, I'd really like you to talk about the history of the breed. Barb mentioned it a little bit, but go back into the foundation of Labrador Retriever and what those guys with their couple shots of whiskey were doing with their dogs when they were writing this breed standard. Well, I'll go back a little further from that because one thing I'm sure my colleagues get all the time is, do you have American or English labs? (laughs) Right. And I actually correct them to performance versus confirmation. Mm -hmm. Because I say these weren't developed in England, guys. They were developed in Newfoundland, and they were, as Barb mentioned, for the sake to help assist the fishermen. And in other breeds, they call it a pot dog. It's the same sort of thing. They were versatile and used for everything. But the unique thing about them is they have that double coat insulating them to be in those cold waters. That is one of the things that's lost in those performance dogs 95% of the time. And There was no standard per se. There was an original standard that was rewritten with some controversy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm being kind. Uh, But the idea is the confirmation dogs are bred to a standard. And the performance dogs are bred to a task. That's the unique difference between them. Mm -hmm. Even though it is just one standard. And I also share with people that it's very hard to live with a performance dog if you're not working them. Mm-hmm. In most cases, right. it's they need a job. Mm-hmm. But the breed has evolved to be the perfect family companion. Goldens are very popular as well, but they carry that heavy coat mm-hmm. most of the time that people don't desire in the long run. But the standard, again, was written by the parent club that was, let's see how to put this, very heavily field-oriented at the time. And some of the characteristics are not really realistic as far as the height and the weight with a confirmation dog, because confirmation dogs can tend to be a bit stocky. Well, they are stockier. Mm-hmm. They'll still get the job done, and I'd rather hunt behind a confirmation dog in the water any day of the week because they honestly don't need a vest. I had a discussion with a hunter yesterday, Mm. and I said, there's your difference right there. I just can't even imagine. I mean, like I said, I started in field trial labs. The thought of having to put a vest on a Labrador 
is mind-boggling to me. Exactly. I mean, mind-boggling. Okay, so let's take our next segue then. And this is, as we mentioned, the number one most registered, most popular breed in the United States. They are wonderful companions. They do a lot of different things we've talked about. And I'd really like to go and focus on the temperament spectrum or the livability spectrum, because I think that helps people understand for people who are looking to buy a Labrador, what kind of temperament, what kind of dog, what kind of personality do you want to bring into your home? Like Sue was just talking about, the real hardcore trial dogs are a lot higher drive, yes, a lot tougher minded than the average show dog or companion bred Labrador. Would that be an accurate assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So Susan, do you want to take this and run with it in terms of the people who are purchasing a dog? What are they looking for? What kind of questions should they ask to get a feel both for what they want to live with and for what the breeder they're working with can provide them with? Sure. I think the biggest thing that people who are purchasing a dog need to be cognizant of is what is their family lifestyle. I tell people who come to me for a puppy that I don't want to know what they're going to do with the puppy specifically, but I want to know how they envision the older dog interacting with them. Is this going to be a dog who is going to be going to work with dad, going to work with mom? Are there children? They're going to be soccer games. Do they hike? Do they camp? Is this a dog who's going to be super involved? Or is this a dog who parents are older and there isn't going to be so much activity? So I need them to share with me their lifestyle so that we can talk about temperament. Because as you and I had talked before, Laura, in each litter, just like in each family of humans, every puppy is different. And every child is different. So you're going to have in the litter a higher drive dog. You're going to have more of a couch potato. You're going to have a dog who's more interested in solving puzzles, who needs the stimulation. And as a breeder, it's my job to be able to match the temperament and the attributes that I see in each puppy in the litter. Because I'm just like Sue and Barb living with them 24-7 for eight weeks with the family who comes to me. And I need the family to trust me to help them with that matchup. I think that's very important because I don't want to have an incorrect match. It's not like they don't have a choice. So it's important. So when you do that, I think it really makes for a good bond with the dog and the family because you're looking at those attributes. And then as a breeder, you stand behind your puppies and you answer questions, help people through rough spots. I think I've helped people with things like, we're just finished chewing a plastic army soldier and how do I stop the dog from chewing on the legs of the baby grand? You know, lots of tips for living with a dog who is growing up and, as Barb mentioned, is extremely oral. (laughs) They need to have something in their mouth at all times. So that selection is really important. And a lot of people get very confused because they don't see the puppy very often. I'll tell you what, there is nothing like a cute Labrador puppy. I mean, it doesn't matter. You fall in love with all of them. And a puppy doesn't always just pick you when you see it once. 
you may see it after it's tired and you don't realize it's had two hours of rock and roll with your right. siblings. Right. And then you bring it home and it tears apart. You're you like, know, like no, a tornado. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into kind of playing matchmaker. I think mm-hmm. it's really important. So I encourage purchasers to visit as often as the breeder is comfortable with. I also let purchasers know that when they buy from a responsible breeder, one of the things that is a fallacy is that they're going to see both parents on site. I know that like Sue and like Barb, I go literally around the world to find the right dog to match the girl that I want to breed. And that usually means that I do not have that stud dog on site. Instead, I'm shipping in for a breeding And that means that I will be able to provide them lots of information, but they'll most likely only meet mom. And they need to be aware of that. That is common practice. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's really, really important too. And Barb, talk a little bit. I think you are uniquely positioned, kind of straddling the worlds, if you will, of confirmation and performance to talk about kind of drill down on some of those differences in personality that we were talking about between sort of the ends of the spectrum, if you will. Yeah, I think Susan really hit the nail on the head with what she just said. I think too, another important piece is I tell families that are looking to ask the right questions. It really is about shopping the breeder, not the individual litter. Right. And so if you get out there, I tell them, you know, go look at the regional clubs, go look at websites, get a good education, ask questions. If there's a breeder you think that you aren't going to get along with, you are not going to want to be tied to that breeder for 14 years or 15 years, the life of the dog that you're going to get. So a lot of it is about that happy marriage of good communication skills, you know, back and forth. So for me, I have to say the field dogs, the litters that we raised at the field trial kennel at seven weeks back in the day when that's when we used to let them all go. 49 days, man. 49 days, you got it. Those puppies were very agile, very quick, very fast on their feet. And they were, they were all Mm -hmm. about an energy level that you only see occasionally in some of the confirmation bread, show bread, obedience and rally bread litters. So there is a spectrum still where, like Susan said, some of the puppies are a little bit hotter and some are more laid back. And then there are those in the middle. For me, I try to let my families come in the order in which they make my list and have say over what they want. But I know more about my individual puppies at eight weeks than they're ever going to know. And if they're about to step in it with picking probably the puppy that isn't the right one for them. I will be sure and let them know that. I want them to feel like they're empowered to make their own decisions. So I don't personally pick puppies out for my families, but I do have a very strong hand in steering them, trying to help them understand why one puppy didn't really pick them that day. I don't think puppies do that. I think that's a fallacy, but that in truth, it really is about matching their lifestyle up with the individual puppy as I see it at eight weeks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And the one we have not touched on, and I'm going to bring this back to Sue because she's our medical practitioner in the household here. Talking about, I was struck by Barb's conversation about her first, however many 
dysplastic Labradors because I have personally experienced this in my family and with friends that back in the day from some of these same lines, actually San Joaquin Honcho came down from Super Chiefs. And that's what we started with was a San Joaquin Honcho bred dog. So talk to us, Sue, a little bit about the status of the breed today. Where are you guys today with some of the health issues with the breed? Well, long, long ago, so to speak, we didn't test for a lot of things. We had their eyes checked yearly. We did x-rayed hips. That was it. Right. And time has progressed. We now x-ray the hips, the elbows. We do extensive genetic testing. And almost every year, at least, another genetic test comes available Mm -hmm. that we are testing for. And we do heart echoes now. So we've advanced tremendously as far as genetic testing. And that's great. And sometimes it then becomes a burden because not everything is perfect and it could be a carrier and not affected. And it gives us the blueprint to do more careful breeding to help minimize potential issues. Is it be all and end all? No, it never will be until we genetic modify. But I think your conscientious breeders have it right up front. You know, they do everything that they possibly can to the best of their ability because they are thinking of the integrity and the future of the breed. They're not thinking of how much money I'm going to make doing a breeding, which is one of the reasons the the Labrador is so popular and there's so many registered because there's a lot, as we know, breeders that don't do what we've just talked about. And it's all about the bottom dollar to them. And we're stewards mm-hmm. of the breed. That's the best right. way I can say mm-hmm. it. And by mm-hmm. being stewards, we are responsible to do the best we can with our own dogs and the puppies we put out to the people. We've all, Barb and Susan have both said, you know, we're in it for the life of the dog. And that is the truth. We have a connection to everybody that's gotten a puppy from us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a reputable breeder is going to stand behind their dogs. I like to talk about 24-7 tech support. Like that's yes. something that people can understand in today's world. Yes. I offer 24-7 tech support. If you have a problem, please call me. Do not get on Dr. Right. Google and try and figure it out. I guarantee you of the four of us sitting here on this phone call, we've seen a lot of what you might be experiencing and we can probably help answer your question. Absolutely. I tell people that all the time. And a lot of what we've seen is specific to Labradors. Right. Just using hotspots as an example. Mm -hmm. You know, hotspot seems to be a a Labrador thing or looking at interdigital cysts. or I mean, there's a lot of different things that we've all experienced on the, oh, please, not again side. Right. (laughs) You know, we're more than glad to say, you know, if you've got a recurring ear situation because they are a floppier dog, here's something you might want to try in the ears rather than going for surgery. There's a lot of preventative, you know, just kind of tricks of the trade that a breeder is more than or should be more than willing to share. And I think that's important for getting back to just what was mentioned earlier, which is you should be, as a purchaser, looking to form a relationship with that breeder because they will be on the other end of that phone, email, or text for the life of the dog. And that's kind of daunting sometimes, but the positive is about it after you've been breeding as long as we've all been breeding, the really fun part is the family you placed the dog with how many years ago 
those children who you thought were really cute are now married with kids of their own and they're coming to you for a dog. And that just is so much fun. That is so it is all about relationships. You know, you're exactly right. I will say this too, Laura, is that I tell my family to give me a call if they have an issue because I can usually help them short circuit with a informed question at the very least to ask their veterinarian when they go in the door. We have terrific veterinarians, but I will say there are some clinics who are interested in that $500 blood panel blood draw for a hangnail. And I want to tell my families, run stuff by me first, and I might be able to help at least with getting it pinpointed down to what you need to ask your vet. So I try to help them with not spending too much money. You know, there's a lot that all of us would understand what that is and breed specific issues. So absolutely, um, it's the same 24 seven tech support. Absolutely. It's my go-to because I think so often what happens when there's people like us who've been doing this for a very long time, we get in our own heads and we use the language that we've always used. And sometimes people in the community who are looking for their first dog don't have the faintest clue what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, ladies, thank you so very much. I've taken enough of your time. You have been generous in your knowledge and I very, very much appreciate it. And I love talking about the Labrador. So do we. Thanks Thanks for for including us. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Good Dog has been deeply inspired by dog clubs and the important work that they do in promoting breeds and educating the public. Good Dog is on a mission to use technology as a force for good, to unite, support, and empower the good forces in the dog world. And there are no greater forces for good than dog clubs. Good Dog could not be more excited to announce their new club partnership program. This offers exclusive benefits to all clubs, including parent clubs, specialty, regional, local, all breed, performance, all the clubs. Club benefits include annual grants of up to $2,000, annual contributions to breed specific research, free tech support for items like improving website SEO, and free legal support and mediation. Due to overwhelming interest in Good Dog's club partnership program, we've extended the deadline for priority application to receive a club partnership grant. The new deadline is November 30th. Apply as soon as possible if your club is interested in securing funding for this year, 2020. For more information, please email Kat Matlube, Good Dog's Head of Community, Partnerships, and Legal Affairs at cat, C-A-T, at gooddog.com. Please share information about the Club Partnerships Program so that we can provide as much support to the good forces in the dog world as possible. We hope you and your clubs will join us because we are so much stronger together. Together, we can change the dog world.